Good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome. It's good to be together as a family in Christ. Those of you visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. I want to invite you in to worshiping our Savior together. You may be a Christian, and so you're joining in with the universal family of God. You've stepped in here and you said, I like what they're saying. I like who they're singing about. We're singing about Jesus Christ. We're, we're praising his name. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're visiting and you're, and you're looking in from the outside and you're like, who are they singing about? Why would they sing so much about this Jesus? I've heard about Jesus, but what I've heard about him doesn't, doesn't seem to align with my view of life. Is this world really that bad? Am I really that bad? Do I really need a Savior? Yes, you do. You need a Savior. And there is no other Savior but Jesus. And there's no one who can save you like Jesus can save you. And that's why we sing about Him. That's why we have joy. That's why we look forward to being with Him forever. He is coming back. And He came as Savior the first time. He's coming as Judge the second time. Today's the day of salvation if you don't know Him. You don't want to meet Him as judge. I want to be embraced by Him as Savior. He came for me. He came for you so that we could be with Him forever. And the way you come to know Him is you read about Him in His Word and you put your faith in what He did. That's how you become a Christian. You put your faith in Him, the Son of God. God came down to rescue you. You don't rescue yourself. Put your faith in the one whom God sent, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. It's His name we proclaim. His name we exalt. And we love to sing about Him. Amen? We're going to open up His Word and hear about Him now. This is where He speaks to His people. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. where we're bringing this book into a conclusion here. A lot of stops and starts over the last several years, but we're coming to a close. And let's read together our text from chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not to see you just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you will speak to us through it, and you will use the Holy Spirit to convict us sin and righteousness and to lead to a greater faith in you and a desire to glorify you in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. 
Amen. So we spent the last two weeks looking at, in the first four verses, at Christ-honoring, gospel-motivated giving. And one of the things that I hope you saw is that, is that when God saves you, He makes you a giver. And He does this by breaking the power of sin in your life. Right? We looked at Colossians 3.5, and there Paul says that, he, that God frees you from a life that's characterized by bondage to such sins as immorality, impurity, shameful passions, and evil desires. Now, the last sin that he lists in that verse is greed. Greed, another word uh, for covetousness, it could be translated. And so, in that verse in Colossians 3.5, you have a number of just ugly sins. Ugly sins. that all, They all seem to be related to, to dark desires. And then, at the, at the end of that list, Paul adds this, this, this word greed. Does, that, does it surprise you that, that, that greed ranks up there with immorality and evil desires? Paul says they all amount to idolatry. See, these are the ruling desires of a sinful heart that you bow down to and you submit to as you would a God. But see, when the true God saves you, He not only delivers you from their grip, but He also transforms the desires of your heart so you no longer Walk in them. See, if you are a Christian, that means that God has saved you by His grace and He has delivered you from greed such that you now desire to give. You desire to learn how to give. You even take joy in giving. And Paul can speak personally of this transforming grace in his own life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Keep your finger here. We'll be back. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look what he says here about himself in verse 12. We're looking at this transformation that God does in our life. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now, the word persecuted here, it it means to stalk, to hunt down. If you're familiar at all with Paul's story, you know how how violent and extreme his, his actions were. He was pursuing a violent, targeted campaign against Christians. And as vivid as that word is, the really graphic word is the one that is translated violent aggressor. One resource, it describes this word this way. It says, it's a violent aggressor. This word refers to a sadist, a violent person, one who deliberately and contemptuously mistreats another person for the sake of hurting and deliberately 
humiliating that person. It speaks of a treatment, of treatment which is calculated to publicly insult and openly humiliate. So Paul, by his own description, was heartlessly cruel. And his work, by choice, was to pursue and to persecute Christians. But again, if you know the story of Paul, you know that after he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, well, Paul has a new job now, doesn't he? And he has a new employer. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 16. I want to draw your attention down to verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see he is with you, cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Paul has been radically transformed from a violent aggressor, a sadistic, hateful, hurtful man to what he calls himself here. The Lord's worker who's doing the Lord's work. God never leaves you as He finds you, friend. A Christian is not someone who has had some kind of a religious experience and and found God. But after the hype and the emotion subsides, he goes right back to the same old lifestyle as before. It's just now that you, you get to claim things like, well, I, I got religious. I got, I got baptized. Well, me and God, we, we got an understanding, right? I'm a Christian. I, I just don't go to church. That's not what God says a Christian is. A Christian, according to the Scriptures, is a new creation in Christ. A Christian has a new nature that's clearly distinguishable from his old nature. A Christian is someone whose life is forever altered, not just, not just for a brief season. He no longer lives only for himself, but he lives now to serve God. Here's how Paul describes what it looks like when God saves someone. This is his description when he wrote the Thessalonians. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You go from self-serving to Christ-serving. You go from your agenda only to God's agenda. And as you look over verses 5 through 12, which we read here, you'll see a man whose life has been transformed and is now about doing the Lord's work. And in these eight verses, I want you to look with me here and see how many times Paul refers here either directly or indirectly to the work of the Lord. He says, first of all, verse 5, he says, I'll come to you. That's part of his work. I'm coming to you because you're people I've ministered in the Lord's work. Verse 6, He says, I'm coming to you so that you'll send me on my way, right? You're going to send me further into the Lord's work. Verse 8 and 9, he says, I'm going to remain in Ephesus where I'm presently doing the Lord's work because a wide door for effective service has opened for me. More work I'm going to be doing here. 
that God's made possible. Verse 10, he says, regarding Timothy, he says, he's doing the Lord's work, as also I am. Verse 11, regarding Timothy, send him on his way to further doing the Lord's work. And then verse 12, regarding Apollos, I encouraged him greatly to come to you to do the Lord's work amongst you. But he has other plans right now, basically, in the work he's doing for the Lord. So that makes seven times in eight verses. And all that Paul is saying here has to do with the Lord's work, which is something that Paul just admonished us right back in verse 58 of chapter 15, that we're to always be abounding in. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So what exactly is the work of the Lord? What is this work that we are to be abounding in? Well, he's not just calling us to, you know, look busy until he returns, like a bunch of ants running around, right? He's commissioned us, hasn't he? He's commissioned us to be doing the work of making disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to observe all the Lord commanded. See, this is the work of making disciples. It's through evangelism. It's through teaching. It's through modeling how to follow Christ. And then we turn around and we call those same people to do the same in other people's lives. Join in this work of making disciples. That is the work of the Lord that we're to be abounding in. So while this is the Lord's work, can you see that we clearly have a part in it. The title of this sermon is Being Diligent in the Lord's Work. Being Diligent in the Lord's Work. And from this passage, we're, we're going to see that our part in the Lord's Work is to serve Him diligently. Our part in the Lord's Work is to serve Him diligently. Now, that statement is rather open-ended. Serve him diligently, folks. Okay. Open-ended. But I did that purposefully. Because Paul here, if you read through this passage, sometimes there's some passages that just, it's like fireworks going off. It's like a trumpet should be blown before we read these words or after them. I mean, they're just so incredible. Like, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then we have verses 5 through 12 where Paul is basically laying out his travel itinerary. It's a rather uneventful passage. But this is where we get our shovels out and we start digging. And we find that there are some real gems here for us that aren't just laying on the ground easy to pick up. And so let's do that. Let's dive into this passage and see what is here for us about serving the Lord diligently. So he's giving in this passage here no explicit teaching. He's given us no exhortations except for his advice about receiving Timothy there in, in verse 11. He's, he's simply relating travel details. 
you've probably written out more exciting travel itineraries when you go on vacation somewhere. And you get excited just looking at it. You're looking at this and like, okay, he's coming to them and then he's going to go here and maybe I'll stay with you and don't forget Timothy. And It would be easy just to overlook this passage as just Paul relating to the Corinthians some of his plans at the close of the letter. But, but when it comes to Scripture, it never returns empty. Every word of it is purposeful. Every word of Scripture is given by God for a reason. And the Spirit of God is always teaching. He's always equipping us through His Word. Some of you could quote 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 right back to me. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for what? Teaching. Reproof. Correction. For training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate. Equipped for every good work. And so from our passage, I want us to see from Paul's example several principles that help us to appreciate what the Lord's work entails and how we can be diligent in our doing of it. Alright, so first, what's the first principle? The Lord's worker must make plans. The Lord's worker must make plans. You need to make plans if you want to be the Lord's worker. Is that anything too novel? No. Nothing novel at all, let alone spiritual. You don't have to be a Christian to make plans. See, in saving us, God doesn't necessarily transform our administrative abilities. Now, He may do that in some folks. There's the gift of administration. And I got in that line and God moved me to another line. And uh, and gave me Rosita. She's my administrative gift. Now, he may do that in some folks. He may actually give them a real just. I get I get a thrill when I open up my calendar and 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 plan out what the Lord's going to be doing in our lives. But here's what he does in everyone. He consumes them. Those whom he saves, he consumes them with His glorious love, such that you now see needs that need to be met. And you see opportunities to do good and to serve others. It's your desire to be a part of planning and, and, and making that happen. But how do you see that in this passage? That's the real question here. Well, look at verse 5. He tells the Corinthians that he plans to come to them after he passes through Macedonia. He says, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. Now, the the reason that Paul emphasizes going uh, through Macedonia, and it could be translated, I'm going to pass through Macedonia, is because he's writing this letter, remember, he's writing this letter from Ephesus. And that's where he's been for the last three years, serving over there. Ephesus is in Asia, and Ephesus is just across the, the Aegean Sea from Corinth, which is Greece. And so the the quickest route, obviously, to get from Ephesus to Corinth would be to hop on a boat, 
and he could be there pretty quickly. But Paul tells him he wants to go by land. Right? He wants to he wants to visit the Macedonian. He just says Macedonia, but when he means when he says Macedonia, what he means is the churches that are in Macedonia. So we were talking about churches like the church in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. It's been several years since he last saw these churches when he was through that region, when he preached the gospel there. And many got saved and churches were planted there. And he says, I want to go back through there now. His plan isn't just to... It's, it's not to stay for an expend, extended period of time in these places. He says, I'm just going to pass through them. Kind of like a supervisor tour. How are you guys doing? Great to see you again. Any problems, anything I could be praying for? Okay, I'm going to move on now. Because my destination is Corinth. That's my plan. I'm going to Corinth. They got some trouble there. They need my help there. You guys doing okay? Praise God. And, and, and actually they were. There were no big incidents occurring in any of these churches. But he just wants to reestablish fellowship and encourage them as he passes through. So Paul wants them to know his plan. I'm going to spend late spring, summer as I'm going through these churches. And then I'm going to come to you, Corinthians. And I'm going to stay with you for an extended period of time. Verse 6, he says, perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter with you. And then verse 7, he says, I, I don't wish to see you now just in passing. I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But Paul has added in just the right language here to convey that this is his plan. It's not a promise. Right? He says, perhaps. He says, I hope. If the Lord permits. All that language is couching it to say, this is my plan, Corinthians. And as it turned out, Paul ended up having to change those plans. Right? And we'll talk about that one next. But first, we make plans. So Paul sent Timothy to Corinth. He was probably the one who delivered this letter. But the plans that he tells them about didn't turn out the way he planned. But even so, this first point about being diligent in the Lord's work is we need to make plans. He's busy ministering daily in Ephesus while he's planning the next steps of his ministry. Visit Macedonia. Stay in Corinth. And then possibly, as we've already seen from previous verses, then go to Jerusalem with the collection for the poor saints in Judea. This is how you remain diligent in the Lord's work. You make plans. Now notice what Paul's plans did not include. His plans did not include coasting. See, by this time he'd already taken three missionary journeys. He's done this over the span of 11 years between A.D. 46 to now, which is when he's writing this would be A.D. 57. It's clear he has no plans of stopping. And when Paul wrote to the Romans, which he did several years later, he mentioned that after he visited Rome, because I want to go to Spain. Spain was a very 
influential city in the Roman Empire to which the gospel had not yet reached. So I want to go there and preach Christ in Spain. He was anxious to go there. He was anxious to preach. He wrote the letter of Romans while he was in Corinth, taking up the collection that he mentions here, right, at the beginning of the chapter. And so once again, while he's serving faithfully where he was, he's making future ministry plans for tomorrow. You know, interestingly, Stanford University, they did a a study of of the time and the cost of travel around the Roman Empire uh, in what would have been 200 A.D. So what would it cost people to get around the Roman Empire in 200 A.D.? So about 100 years prior would be what we're talking about here with Paul. But, you know, roughly the same time. And so as Paul traveled by land and he traveled by sea, he traveled from Antioch and he went throughout the cities in Asia and Greece, all in all, he probably traveled about 8,000 miles. And his travel time alone, right? So we're not counting the time in which he was staying in the locations. So we're talking about just the amount of time he's on a donkey or, or he's walking or he's on a boat looking over the edge, trying not to be seasick. Just that amount of time. For eight years, it was 250 days. The price of the travel on those ships was alone in excess. Just the ships, just the time he spent traveling on ships would have been in excess of what would be $50,000 today. That's how much he spent getting around over these three Missionary journeys. See, Paul always saw more work that needed to be done. More people that needed to hear the gospel. More believers that needed to be instructed and encouraged. See, the world is working and planning. But their efforts are focused on the day that they can finally retire. Stop working. There's nothing wrong with making such plans. You know, there's no sin in planning for whenever you might stop your present job and retire, so forth. There's no sin in that. But is the goal of life to simply be able to wake up one day, wake up when you want, have all the all the time that you want to be able to travel the world, play golf, read the books you've always wanted to read? Take as many naps as you want to take. Is that your goal? Is that the is that the finish line that you're aiming for? You know, back in May of 2000, about 40,000 college students arrived in Memphis for the fourth Passion Conference. One of the key speakers there was was one of my favorite. Uh, preachers and theologians, John Piper. Now, earlier that day, before he got up to speak at the Passion Conference, Piper had asked God, he said, I, he, this is quoting Piper, he says, I asked God for a prophetic word that would have a ripple effect to the ends of the earth and to eternity. That was his prayer. And God gave him what he asked for. After he prayed... Piper began saying, 
this is quoting him from his sermon. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good looking. You don't have to be from a good family, he told them. You just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. And then Piper proceeded to bring forth a comparison that nobody ever forgot. Just three weeks earlier, he'd received news that two missionary friends of his, two women, both in their 80s, had been killed in Cameroon. One had been a nurse, the other had been a doctor. And they both had shared the same passion. They wanted to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. And so 20 years after most of their contemporaries were pursuing trivialities in in Florida and in New Mexico, right? They made a plan instead to go to Cameroon and to go from village to village to tell the poor and the sick about Jesus Christ. And on one of those trips between villages, their brakes went out, the car went over a cliff, and they were instantly killed. And then Piper, after explaining all that, he he asks the crowd, is this a tragedy? And the crowd knew the answer, right? Calling, no! No, this is not a tragedy. And Piper agreed with him. He said, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And then he page from a Reader's Digest magazine. That's an old magazine. A magazine, kids. A magazine is... Uh, <laughs> no, Reader's Digest, Right? And this is what he read to them. Quote, he's quoting from this Reader's Digest article. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And then he looked up and he says, That's a tragedy. And then Piper proceeded to plead with this crowd of 40,000. He says, don't. Don't buy that dream. Don't you buy that dream. That's the last chapter before you stand before the Creator of the universe. And you're going to give an account of what you did. And here's, here's the words that rung throughout the Christian world. He says, here it is. My shell collection, Lord. I've got a good swing. And look at my boat, God. And then he said some of the most memorable, profound words spoken in our generation. He said, don't waste your life. I'm sure you've heard the phrase that failure to plan is planning to fail. Your good intentions of one day serving the Lord, serving the Lord more, more than you are now, 
right? That's going to remain nothing more than intentions unless you make a plan today for how that's going to happen tomorrow. And that plan needs to be actionable. What are some plans that you could make that will lead to prepare, lead to you preparing for doing the work of the Lord? Oh, it's go to seminary, right? It's go to missionary training school. It's start denying myself good food so I can one day eat bugs in the jungle while I tell people about Jesus, right? That's what you're going to tell me, right? You can do that if you want. But you don't have to go that extreme. It's very simple. How do you prepare today with an actionable plan that will make you fit for doing the Lord's work tomorrow? Well, the, Lord work, the Lord's worker needs to be growing in their knowledge of God. The more you know of God, the more you know about God, the more that you will love Him and trust Him and obey Him and desire to serve Him. What actionable steps can you be taking to grow in your knowledge of God that you may not be doing today, but you know you should be? The first thing that you can do is you can discipline yourself to a daily time of communion with God. Commune with Him in His Word. Commune with Him in prayer on a daily basis. It's simple. But yet it seems to be so out of reach for us, doesn't it? It's simple. Set a time that you're going to get up 30 minutes before your day normally begins so that you can read His Word, you can study His Word, and you can pray to Him. Is that anticlimactic? That's not going to seminary. It's getting up 30 minutes early and start to discipline yourself to read His Word faithfully and to commune with Him in prayer. There are dozens of plans out there that you could choose from that will help you to read through the Scriptures on a daily basis and even get through the whole Bible in a year. You Just, have, just, just Google it. There, you'll see how many are out there. There are dozens of plans. There's the classic one-year plan. There's three-year plans. There's chronological reading plans. There's five-day reading plans. There's 30-minute ones. There's three-minute ones or five-minute ones. And on and on it goes. If If you want to do the Lord's work, you need to know the Lord increasingly and intimately. And you do that through His Word where He reveals Himself to us. You also need to discipline yourself to pray to God. See, If you want to do the Lord's work, then you must do it the Lord's way. You don't come to the Lord. You don't come there telling Him all that you're going to do for Him. You come to Him humbly. And you ask Him earnestly. You you say, Lord, what is it that You are doing? Would You include me in what You are doing? Don't tell Him what you're going to do. Ask Him if He would include you in what He is doing. God knows how to include those who, whose cry is, is not to us. Not to us. The Lord be the glory, right? That's a little shout out to the Soul Conference last night. Sanctity of Human Life Conference. Shai Lin was there. And we had a 
a wonderful time praising the Lord, being encouraged. Not to us, not to us, but the Lord be glory. See, plan for a specific time of bringing to the Lord your needs, the needs of your family, the needs of your friends, the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Start with a prayer request shared at your home fellowship group. And be faithful in praying for them and following up with those people. Have you had a chance to talk to this person? How's this person's health? How are you doing? How are you doing with your fears and your concerns? I'm praying for you. Cultivate an attitude of prayer that you take with you throughout the day. Bring all your needs, all your praises, all your concerns to God and do it in unceasing prayer. See, a heart of prayer is a humble, obedient, and submissive heart. And that is the heart of the Lord's worker. So your willingness to work for the Lord, it can only be measured by two things. What you are doing now and what you are preparing yourself to do tomorrow. So the Lord's worker makes plans. But as we make our plans to further do the work of the Lord, we must accept that our plans, as good as we think they are, they may not be the Lord's plans. So notice again the language that Paul uses when he tells the Corinthians about his plans. In verse 5, he says, I'll come to you after I go through Macedonia. I'm going through Macedonia and perhaps I'll stay with you Maybe I'll spend the winter with you so that you can send me on wherever I may go. For I don't wish to see you just now in passing. I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. The second principle that's going to help you be an effective and diligent in the Lord's work is do not presume. Specifically, do not presume that your plan is God's plan. Do not presume that your plan is God's plan. For those who love to plan, it can be quite devastating for those plans to have to change. Rosita will pour over our family's calendar for a couple hours and squeeze in every possible way that we can do the certain things that we plan to do and then one person won't pay attention to that and all of a sudden the plans come to a screeching halt. That's just the life of a planner. You have to deal with people who don't pay attention to the plans. You know, despite our best efforts, we cannot make the future come together as we plan it to, as we want it to. Your plans may have made complete sense to you, and you might even have tried to take into account all sorts of contingencies, but God reserves the right to overrule them as He sees fit. James is the one who advises us to make plans, but to do so in light of the Lord's sovereignty over all things. You're familiar with James 4, but let's get our eyes on it. James chapter 4. After Hebrews comes James. It's right before Peter. He says in verse 13, Come now. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. Right? That's what 
those who say this, right? And then James steps back in and he says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. This, all, this, this sounds like, like, like planning that we're to be diligent in the Lord. I mean, this is what we're supposed to be doing in the Lord's work, right? We're going to say tomorrow I'm going to be here and then I'm going to go there and I plan to do this while I'm there, right? That sounds like the planning that we're supposed to do. But then look at what James adds. He goes on to say, instead of just making your plans, right? You ought to say this. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this and that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. See, in our planning... We, we must not allow pride to let us think that our plans are God's plans. In our planning, we should be praying for wisdom and guidance and direction and opportunity. We should even be praying, Lord, make our efforts fruitful. But even the wisest man alive understood his own limitations. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16, verse 9, he says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so Paul made his plan to visit the Corinthians. And he communicated that plan to them in this letter. He put the wise qualifications in place that in the carrying forth of these plans, it will only be, he says, if the Lord permits. And as God would have it, God's plan was different than Paul's. So we only learn this as we look at 2 Corinthians, that Paul's plans changed. His plan changed in, in light of news, of continued problems in Corinth. See, instead of traveling, as he said, he was going to do up through north, up through Macedonia, around the Aegean Sea, he ended up making an emergency voyage from Ephesus straight across to Corinth. And it ended up being both a disastrous and a disheartening visit. For some reason... Uh, we don't know. Luke did not record this journey of Paul's in the book of Acts. That's often where we line all this stuff up. This isn't mentioned in Acts. Paul only alludes to it in 2 Corinthians. And from his description, it was not an, an enjoyable visit for either him or the Corinthians. Look at, uh, well, you all, probably your Bible's right there on 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 1, and he says in verse 23, he says, this is where he's alluding to this visit. He says, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I didn't come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So this is not the first visit. The first visit to him was where they came to Christ. This is a visit that happened that what already happened by the time he's writing 2 Corinthians. And he says, I'm not going to come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but for the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, 
but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. See, there was, there was some kind of a nasty confrontation with someone that, that didn't go well. And it led to Paul leaving Corinth. Came over quickly and he left quickly. But as he, he left, he fired off a letter. And it's a letter that he refers to here. Uh, look at, uh, yeah, in verses 3 and 4. He says, he says, this very thing I wrote to you. That's not 1 Corinthians. And he's writing 2 Corinthians. So there's a letter in between. We don't have this letter. It wasn't inspired of God. There's nothing in that letter that God needs us to know. That's why we don't have it. There are many letters the apostles wrote that we don't have because God didn't inspire them. But he's making reference to this letter. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that I love you. Right? Some, some words that cause tears are also words of love. But you don't like the tears. You just want them to know that these hard words come from a heart of love. Most people refer to these visit, this visit as the painful visit. They refer to this letter as the letter of tears. Now, that was not the only change that Paul had to make to his plans. As Paul was departing Corinth after this painful visit, he told them that he changed his plans to come to Corinth through Macedonia. So that's the plans that he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 16. I'm going to come to you through Macedonia. He told them instead of going through Macedonia, he's going to come back to Corinth, and then he's going to travel back up to Macedonia, and then he's going to come back down to Corinth. So you guys are going to get two visits from me. This is after this painful visit. He, as he's leaving Corinth, that's what he tells them. We're not going to go into the, the texts that show all this. And then he's going he's to come to them, he's going to go to Macedonia, and then he's going to come back one last time, gather up the collection, and then he's going to go to Jerusalem with the money for the saints. Right? And look at uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, In this confidence I intended at first to come to you. I guess we are going to go through these verses. I forgot. In this confidence I intend at first to come to you so that you might receive, this is verse 15, so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way from, I'm going to come to you, then I'm going to go into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia come to you and buy you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So there's where he lays out again what his plans were. But that's not what ended up happening. So plan one, to come to Corinth, that was revised by this emergency visit that turned out to be really painful. He returns back to Ephesus, telling them, here's my revised itinerary. So itinerary number two, he communicates that to the Corinthians. And this, this itinerary involves not one, but two visits to you guys. Well, revised itinerary number two ends up being revised also. And in the end, Paul ends up returning to Corinth in a manner that was actually similar to itinerary number one after going through some rather harrowing experiences as he was going up north and through Greece in which his life was threatened when the plot by the Jews was revealed and he had to get out of there. So... All these details, it's like, why are we going through all this? 
there's not fireworks going off in your head right now. You're just like, okay, why, where are we going with this? See, the Corinthians, all these changes left a sour taste in their mouths towards the Apostle Paul. They were offended. They saw Paul as fickle. They saw him as indecisive. They questioned his integrity. And this is why we find him defending all these changes in 2 Corinthians, which he wrote to them while he was going through Macedonia. So here he's up going now finally through Macedonia, and he, he knows that they're accusing him. You're not doing what you said you'd do, Paul. You said you'd come to us first and then Macedonia. But now you're up in Macedonia. So he writes 2 Corinthians to them. And he says, in verse 17 of chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, he says, he says, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what, what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be a yes, a yes and no, and no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. I'm not a vacillator, he says. And then in verse 23, I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. See, Paul is insisting, I had noble intentions in changing my plans. I'm not a double-minded man. Paul truly did intend to come back to Corinth. And he intended to come twice after that painful visit when he announced his intentions. But, but things outside of his control forced a change. Now, if we go back to chapter 16, in the words of our passage, we see all the while in Paul's very first communications to him that he had the right perspective on his plans all along. Right? What does he say? He says, if the Lord permits, in verse 7. That's what he told them. And as the Lord would have it, he didn't permit it. Events did not turn out as he planned. And I give you all this detail to emphasize that we make our plans, but we do so with proper understanding that God can overrule our plans, however well-intentioned they may be. We must leave room for the sovereignty of God in our planning. Instead of presuming that your plans are God's plans, what we need is a combination of humility and flexibility. The Lord knows what is best, not me. The Lord already knows the good that He's bringing about for His people and for His glory. He already knows how best to accomplish it. He even knows the ripple effects of good that He is planning in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ and in the lives of people that He wants to impact. And then there's the secret plans of God. The plans that He's made to impact people you don't even know about. You know the world has a name for this? It's called the butterfly effect. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? The idea arises out of chaos theory. Saying that something incredibly small, it can result in much larger unanticipated events. Something as small as the flapping and the minor disturbances of a butterfly's wings can lead several weeks later to a tornado elsewhere in the world. So, you know, the idea is, hey, just you going and getting a cup of coffee could lead to a change in your career path that you never anticipated. That's the butterfly effect. You know what Christians call it? 
the sovereignty of God. It's called the sovereignty of God. It gets dizzying when you start to think about how God can use your simple faithfulness and willingness to do the Lord's work to accomplish things that you won't know about until heaven. We are simply workers in God's field. We're simply planting seeds or we're watering seeds that other people have planted. But our incomprehensibly wise, our unfathomably sovereign God is the one who's causing growth where and when He wants it. But the planting and the watering of those seeds, that's something we need to be preparing and planning for. That's our responsibility. We water, we plant. We plant, we water. We water, we plant, and God causes the growth when He wants it. Yes, they can happen in unexpected moments, right? When you're in line at the grocery store or something like that, you might be planting a seed. We accept that. But we, what Paul is doing here, he's making plans. And so in our planning, we must not presume to think our plan is God's plan. Plans should always be subject to the Lord's revision. And humility and flexibility in your planning, therefore, is not a form of weakness, not a form of timidity. Make your plan happen. It's of solid reason, faith, and a wonderfully sovereign God. That's what humility and flexibility in our planning is. Solid, reasoned, sovereign God. Now, the plans that Paul made were good ones. They, they had the best interests of the believers in Macedonia and in Corinth. But God changed those good plans with what could appear to our eyes as something painful. And one of the most challenging things that we will face is when our good plans get altered by unexpected, even painful events. The plan to visit your grandparents turns into a tragedy because of some drunk driver. And suddenly the course of your family is drastically altered from that point on. See, this is the challenging part of God's sovereignty. And when, when God, who is in total control, allows pain or loss or heartache, sometimes even by the sinful actions of of someone else, of a wicked man. See, this is where your faith is challenged in ways that you would probably prefer that it never be challenged. In times of unexpected tragedy, you come face to face with your God. Is God sovereign? Did God allow this? Does God love me? Did God make a mistake? Can I trust Him? And all other kinds of questions that come swirling through your mind when these types of events happen in our life. And several, all of these are painfully challenging questions that you wish you weren't even asking. But friends, where your faith is challenged, and even painfully sometimes, that is where your God means for your faith in Him and your trust in Him to truly and wonderfully grow. Are you still working through some of those difficult changes to your plan for your life? Here is your God, Christian. Isaiah 45. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Here is your God, Christian. 
Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it, and woe to those who quarrel with his Maker. An earthen well vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hand. God's will and His purposes, they are behind everything. He, he, is, he is not the cause of sin. He is not the cause of the sin of other people. But He does permit those things to accomplish His good purposes. I don't ask you to fully understand that because I can't fully understand that. But that's our God, Christian. Make no mistake, these can be difficult for us to accept, especially when the losses are painful and they are personal. And so, this can take time. But what we must work towards accepting and embracing is that God is God and we are not. He knows what He's doing, even when He allows events that seem contrary to His goodness and promises. Isaiah's warning here against challenging God's right to do His will in His own way. That's what he's doing here. To put God under suspicious scrutiny. What are you doing, God? That may be tempting, but it is dangerous. What right have we, mere creatures, to demand that God, the Maker, explain Himself to us? One last verse to mention as we conclude here. Lamentations 3. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? What should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Why should he do that? See, this is what God said to his own people after he brought up the destruction of their home in Jerusalem. All that happens in our lives, it only happens because God has a reason for allowing it. Will you trust Him with that? Will you allow God, who sees the end from the beginning, to be God in your life, or will you fight with Him? And I was going to go through the story of Joseph. I, I commend that to you to read. Genesis 37-50. through 50. Read that to see this unfolding plan of God not only showing his sovereignty in the life of Joseph, but in his plan to save a people. Both were taking place. He was both faithful to his promises in preserving his people and faithful to Joseph. And it all concludes when it's all said and done with, with Joseph being able to see it. As for you, speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good, and that's true for your life as well. Genesis 50, verse 20, 19 and 20 is like the Romans 8, 28 of the New Testament. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You can trust Him, Christian, even when evil happens. Even then, through the tears, you can know that He's causing all things to work together for you for good, because He's called you to His purposes. And His purpose is to glorify Himself in your life. Is that your desire? 
Is your desire to have your plans work according to your way? Or is your desire to see God glorified in your life? Because those two may be two different things. Your plan to glorify God and God's plan to glorify Himself in your life. Have you surrendered your life to Him yet? And I mean fully. Are you still trying to run your life according to your plans? You can trust Him. It was His plan to use wicked men to put His Son to death. But it was through His death at the hands of wicked men that God brought about the greatest good. He made salvation for sinners possible. So my friends, make your plans. But do not presume that your plans are God's. Right? His are always better. I can tell you on the authority of God's Word that the greatest plan that you could ever make today is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and say, rule my life in your good and perfect ways. We'll continue to look at being diligent in the Lord's work next week, if the Lord permits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your sovereign care for us. We're grateful that we can trust you. That we can put ourselves in your hands and that we can know that that even though it may bring pain and tears, that we have nothing to fear. You've purchased us with the blood of your Son. Nothing is too difficult for you. You can bring beauty out of ashes. And the most glorious beauty that you will ever bring into our lives is when we stand before you in transformed bodies with transformed eyes, looking on our glorious risen Savior. And we know that day will come about, no matter what happens between now and then. Oh, but may you bring about changes, simple but good changes in the lives of your people here today to make plans to serve you in your work. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.